When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Tamarindo, we talk to a specialist in Alzheimer's disease research and neurology. The conversation delves into the disparities in Alzheimer's research and healthcare access, particularly for underserved communities. Dr. Diaz Santos sheds light on the importance of addressing structural and social determinants of health to bridge these gaps. Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast, hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a fitness coach, political nerd, and nonprofit capacity builder, and me, Delcy Sandoval, a Guatemalan-American licensed therapist and passionate creativity advocate. Together, we're here to uplift our community through powerful conversations with changemakers, creatives, and healers. Each week on the pod, we talk politics, culture, and personal development. Listeners call Tamarindo the advocacy and self-love podcast. Vámonos! Let's start the show. Hello, Tamarindo listeners. Hi, Brenda. Hi, Delcy. It's good to be stateside after our, our adventures in Mexico. How are you? Massive adventures. It's so nice to see you. I feel like after a week of spending time together, it felt weird to separate. You're yeah, like, oh, ¿dónde está Delcy? Oh, está she's Brenda? in her house. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> ¿Dónde está Don Ramón? ¿Dónde está Vicky? <laughs> My parents. Seriously. And we're going to talk more about that in this episode. And you know what? It's a really exciting episode for me, especially because we're talking about brain health today. I had such an amazing conversation with Dr. Diaz Santos, who's an Alzheimer's disease specialist and a neurology advocate. So I'm really excited for us to have that conversation. Pero primero, yes. ¿qué pasa, Brenda? Let's talk about it. ¿Cómo estás? I, um, I'm feeling grateful to be back. I mean, I know we're going to get into it a little bit later in this episode to tell our listeners um, about our sold out Encuentro retreat and all the amazing experiences that we had. But just as in terms of what I'm feeling right now, I'm really feeling grateful and, and excited. Also excited about today's conversation because um, the idea of, of our brain being flexible like a muscle, truly, that we could change our brain potentially is is kind of magical and also kind of aligned with the intentions that we had for our retreat of really just like um, sparking creativity and also uh, Amigas Blossoming, which is like that that name is not only the name of an event that we're planning, but it's just sort of what happens. So, yeah. So I'm so excited. But how are you? You know what? I feel the same. I think I left with a lot of feelings of gratefulness and a lot of almost like self-discovery from that trip, which is interesting because we created this trip um, so that other people could experience right, self-discovery right. and self-awareness. And what ended up happening is that I felt transformed yes. by the experience too. And kind of leads me into, into um, talking about this article that I read in the New York Times that talked about alternative medicine and how, I don't know if you recall this, but maybe like 10 years ago, there was a lot of conversation around this division between like Eastern medicine and Western medicine and conventional medical models versus unconventional medical models and what that was. And um, for a lot of us, especially growing up in our communities, there was no separation. There was no distinction. Like the same medicine that you would get from like your grandmother. It was just, right. you know, you would take it as seriously as what you got from. Yeah, uh, all these remedios. Right? Yeah. It also reminds me of our trip to Mexico because yes. there was all these remedios that all my aunts, <laughs> one aunt had one remedio, my grandpa had another one. So, yes, yeah. these ideas of ways, different ways to heal. That's right. And I think that a lot of people who uh, are, you know, especially people of many roots had access to all of these different ideas on sort of how to cure and heal the body. But for mainstream society, for us growing up in the United States, there was still this clear division. So this article was talking about how now there seems to be more of a merging and more of an acceptance in the medical community of merging some of these models like acupuncture, like meditation, 
Um, and so I was wondering about your experience with some of these medical models, especially since since we had an experience at Encuentro. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, I think it's all evolving in, in this idea of, of, of things that maybe the word woo-woo, like, oh, okay, you know, that's, that's for them. But then learning like, okay, well, maybe th there's, there's actually some truth to this, some benefits to this. That's sort of like an evolving thing. And yes, one of the activities that we had for our Encuentro retreat participants, it was meditation. And I know that I wasn't alone. And I think you probably also felt this way too, that I don't know if meditation is for me. Every time I've tried it, it it's felt like very difficult to quiet my mind. And so these are like the, the resistance that I carried coming in, which I know other of our participants had that. But what really worked for this particular group of, of women was, was that it involved movement. So we, we engaged in a lead meditation that was a, an hour long, and it involved movement throughout. And that was extremely helpful. At least I heard a lot of the participants share that that was really helpful as, as like a way to truly focus, right? Because you have to focus on the movements. They weren't complicated, but they were... Um, symbolic and and there was like energy for sure flowing in the room that and the incorporation of music um, I had also shared that I once went to a sound bath that was 90 minutes and I just the instructions were to just lay there and listen to the music and it was the worst 90 minutes of my life <laughs> I did not quiet down at all my I was like what is this over I did not feel these feelings at I, this I do that of my own free will with dark side of the moon from ah. every now and then but not not for meditation right oh my gosh I was like how do I get out of this room it was terrible this was a very different experience because it was movement so what, what came up for you as you were doing this you know meditation? what I totally agree with you so one time some time ago you know I, I always felt like I would be a great candidate for meditation just based on my worldview who and I am so mellow I can I can't believe you that you don't it. meditate. But I, I joined this like four hour meditation. It was like really early in the morning, like 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., wow. you know, eight, four hour meditation. And the sitting for my body just had such a difficult time thinking of anything other than the pain <laughs> of the positions that I was mm. in. And then all the anxieties around like, oh, am I making too much noise shifting around? Am I am I doing this wrong? Right. There's so many intrusive thoughts. And I know that the the prompt is to let them wash over you. But for some of us, not moving our bodies is very, very, very overwhelming yes. and can actually cause anxiety, right? Right. It's like an avalanche. They're like, <laughs> like washing over you. <laughs> oh no, but this is an avalanche. Exactly. Especially somebody like me, like I'm very, you know, just like hyperactive sometimes and I need to move around. And so I was nervous about this meditation, but I went in with an open mind mm -hmm. and it was all movement, like you said, with the music. And because my body was in a state of movement, it opened up the possibilities of like emotional access. Yeah, yeah. And I had a lot of profound moments, but I That's actually wonderful. felt like I was going to cry a lot. And I had moments of sadness, but also moments of joy and a lot of hopefulness and a lot of clarity. I was actually really surprised yeah. by my reaction. That was definitely a highlight of, of our activities together, this meditation. So it was going to be my, my, my matraca for later, but I'll just give it my matraca now. Yeah. The, the wonderful staff at the Hotel Cartesiano that led this, med this um, meditation, everybody was, was surprised at how much they enjoyed it. Yeah. And so I'm really happy to hear, you know, when I was reading this article, they highlighted meditation as a, an option that has gained a lot of popularity in the medical system because of its like low cost and easy access and sort of um, ability for anybody to to join in. Right. You don't need equipment. Yeah. You don't need equipment and you don't need to have um, like there there's capacity f to do that anywhere mm -hmm. at any time in any kind of range of mobility. So I, I think that's great. And kind of leads us to talking about health overall. Let's talk a little bit about this episode a little bit more. Okay, tell me. So we, we have, have, like I said earlier, Dr. Diaz Santos. And what's really interesting about Dr. Diaz is that she is the director of Equity for Latine Hispanic Healthy Aging Lab at UCLA uh, with a focus on Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. She also is an active member of the Diversity Advisory Committee at UCLA, which is fantastic. This conversation is so important because if ever you've thought that Alzheimer's or dementia was something you needed to worry about when you were older, 
boy, did I learn that that was wrong. Oh, yeah. I and this conversation helped me to understand that actually the younger you are, the earlier that you can strengthen your brain health. So she gives really practical tips and it actually made me reevaluate how I spend my days. So I'm really excited. Really helpful stuff. So just so I understand. So you, what was a surprise to learn is that all of us who are not yet, uh, not yet seniors should already be thinking about ways that we could build some resilience against this disease because we can't completely prevent it. But there might be some things we could do to recognize signs and to, and in a way, you know, pre- prevent our risks, prevent our risks. Yes, to prevent mm-hmm. the risks. And, and also just this idea that the same way you think about your emotional, spiritual, social health, you should be thinking about your brain health. And I'm not sure that like the actual physical brain health outside of your mental health and emotional capacity, right? And so I thought that was really new to me and, and it'll be really great to see how everybody reacts to yes. that. Yes, all right. Well, let's, let's hear from her now. Wow, it is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Mireya Diaz-Santos-Sutamarindo. Hi, Mireya, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure having you here. I really want to start off with your journey. Can you walk us through what was it that initially inspired you to study neurology and maybe what ultimately led you to specialize in Alzheimer's research for our community? No, absolutely. So I'll try to be as concise as possible. So. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, and as a young kid, first gen, uh, my parents had me when they were in their early 20s. Um, I always knew that I want I wanted something more for my career, a higher education. I just didn't know what in particular. I always loved psychology or psychiatry because mental health is very important for me. Um, in my communities and my family, mental health regarding depression, anxiety, trauma is always very visible, even if we don't talk about it. Um, but what led my career towards more like brain sciences, neuropsychology, neurosciences was that my maternal grandmother began to show symptoms that then we learned it was related to Alzheimer's, right? So seeing someone that you love, and I know that many of us can empathize with this, so seeing someone that you love that is very independent, is a very sassy woman that took life um, on her own terms and then started declining. At that time, there were no education. I was in middle, um, high school, almost college, and there was no information about Alzheimer's. So I venture. And I was like, I needed, I needed to understand what happened with my grandmother and what is this brain disease that changed her completely. So I applied to graduate school. I went to Boston University for a PhD in clinical psychology, specialized in neuropsychology of, with older adults. And long story short, I ended up at UCLA working with um, our Latino, Latinx, Hispanic communities and specialize in Alzheimer's from a clinical um, standpoint, but also from a research community center um, standpoint, which is where I'm at right now in neurology. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about where you are right now and what it is that you're up to, because you are currently really leading the way when it comes to research for our community in this area. Can you speak a little bit about the important work that you're doing? Thank you so much. So we started um, my lab. My lab is called the Equity for Latinx um, Hispanic Healthy Aging Lab, ELA. Um, and that's in honor of my grandmother. Her name was Estrella. So I symbolize it with Ella. Um, and the whole uh, mission is to work alongside communities to understand specifically what are their needs surrounding Alzheimer's, but with a huge emphasis on prevention. Prevention first, because one aspect that we know is that once someone develops the syndrome, 
of memory decline, they're getting lost, they're having difficulties recalling loved ones or their names and so forth. Um, the science tells us that there's no treatment so far, uh, so far that is available to all our communities that will just regress the symptoms. So once it starts, it continues, right? So I focus a lot on prevention and prevention starts with knowing what the brain is in translating the available science that is in the literature and stays there and making it hopable and comprehensible to our communities, both in English and in Spanish. So that's something that I'm very passionate about of, um, of creating programs with our community that they can understand why is my brain important, but also what can I do that will make it stronger and reduce our risks of developing Alzheimer's because our communities are a higher risk, almost 50% um, a higher risk. So the sooner that we start of engaging in these preventative behaviors, regardless of whether you're 25 or 15, or it doesn't matter. It's like, this is the prevention starts now. And that's what we focus on. Yeah, I love that. And this is really why we wanted to have you on the show, right? Because I think when people think of dementia or they think of brain health or Alzheimer's, they're thinking they have a long time to go, right? This is something that has to do with older adults. But I like the idea of us really understanding what this looks like for us today, for folks that are not quite there yet in our evolution. Maybe you can start by explaining what is brain health and how what does that look like in our daily lives? No, absolutely. And, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation because there's always a disconnect between the science and what our communities are aware of, right? So what we know now in the level of science is that we accumulate through our lived experiences, right? They are modified by policies and laws that makes us... Um, increases our access to some resources and inhibits our access to some resources, right? So we accumulate all those live experiences that either increases our chances of developing a chronic condition such as Alzheimer's disease in the future chronologically or reduces the risk. So we're always having that equation of if I am in a very stressful environment, I know that inflammation will be will increase in my body. Chronic stress, there's evidence in um, animal models and in some human studies that chronic stress impacts our hippocampus. And our hippocampus is the first, the main structure forming new memories and the structure that Alzheimer's pathology typically targets first, right? So if we know all those, um, that science and all those risk factors that we have in our environment, then we can empower ourselves on making daily decisions on how to take care of ourselves with the idea of reducing our risk factors in the future of developing Alzheimer's. Yeah, that kind of leads me to the next question, because from what I understand, everything that we do impacts our brain every day, right? We've got this kind of remarkable ability to adapt, which is, you know, I know I know neuroplasticity exists. Maybe you can elaborate on how this change plays a significant role in our overall well-being. Yeah, so, and, and I apologize because I know that I didn't answer the question, what is brain health, right? So brain health is like, is the equivalent, if we think about mental health, or how do we make decisions that keeps our mind, body, spirit, and soul in a balanced way? We're understanding that in our environment, we're always going to encounter stressors and adversities. How do we balance that? In a mental uh, in mental health, so brain health is the same way. It's like how do we protect our brain from damage that we know certain chemicals, uh, certain conditions can impact, and um, that overwhelms 
the our systems and starts attacking our brain in different areas. So brain health is basically how do we keep that balance, right? And keep uh, make decisions on a daily life or daily basis that makes our brain stronger so it can combat any insult that the brain might take. So how do we make it stronger? And then your question was, yeah, my question is a little bit about how neuroplasticity plays a role in our daily well-being. Oh, absolutely. I love this question because if we think about um, a brain like a muscle, right? So if we exercise, if we uh, we if we exercise with strength strength training uh, or just movement, muscle um, like just movement. We know that the muscles, you know, they grow, they transform. So the same thing happens with live experiences and neuroplasticity. What neuroplasticity means is the ability of our brain to expand and to heal based on live experiences, right? For example, a lot of literature tells us that education and knowledge is associated with neuroplasticity. So if we think about it, we have the slogans that say, knowledge is power. Technically it's true because knowledge and keep our brain activated and learning new things and learning new skills enhances neuroplasticity and actually also neurogenesis, which is the birth of new neurons across the brain. Wow, that's really fascinating, right? This idea that we do have the capacity to heal our brains the same yes. way that we might think about healing our bodies. I'm curious about something that you mentioned earlier. You talked a little bit about how um, Alzheimer's disease and kind of related dementias disproportionately impact our community, disproportionately impact people who maybe are socioeconomically disadvantaged. And yet, I noticed that we're also kind of significantly underrepresented when it comes to research. Can you explain maybe why that is and then some efforts that you've seen to change this? Mm -hmm. um, so that is something that I'm very passionate about um, because what I know as a clinician and as a researcher is that our science dictates our medical practices and interventions and medications, right? So that means that if our communities don't have access to healthcare or where these medications or clinical studies are, are being conducted, then that means that the science and the interventions might not be applicable for our communities per se. And unfortunately, the answer is really complex um, because it, it has to do with structures. It has to be the structures that if, for example, as simple as language, right? Unfortunately, for example, we have a lot of these clinical studies and I have spoken with several members of different pharmaceutical companies that have no protocols in Spanish. Right. So it depends on where you are located. And what we know here in LA County or in Southern California, where I look, I'm located at UCLA, is that our older adults are mostly Spanish speakers. So by the policies that you have in place, you're automatically excluding the communities that actually need to inform the science to move it forward and be more equitable. As simple as language, you will think otherwise. We can talk about other structures of why we are higher risk and why we don't have access to these clinical treatments. But you can imagine it's like if the efforts are not there to make the science relevant 
appropriate, culturally and linguistically, you know, center in the communities that actually need the science the most, they won't participate because they can't. Yeah, I mean, you really are outlining that there are societal factors, right, that that play a major role when we're talking about healthcare access and psychoeducation and things like this. Maybe you can speak a little bit about what it is that we as the general public can be doing to make healthcare access just more equal and, and more equitable across the board. Yeah, one aspect that I have been working with alongside um, all of my community partners is and in institutions is moving away from putting the blame on our communities. That's a narrative that unfortunately we continue to see and be um, disseminated is they don't come to healthcare, they don't come to the doctor because they don't care about their health or because they don't they don't want to. And I was like, well, how many of our communities don't actually have health insurance. Let's start with basic needs. Like one of the the papers that I'm recently um, um, reading is that paradox where a lot of our communities, when you talk about intersectionalities and one of them is immigration, how do the policies that exclude some of our community members who are at higher risk of Alzheimer's don't have access to basic needs, but they are, they they want the structures want them to participate in a science that actually doesn't benefit them. So what can we do as community? It's like knowledge is power. It's understanding that there's a lot of structures, policy, and laws and legislations that need to be challenged, um, and move away from blaming communities into changing the policies and laws. So a lot of advocacy, um, I will say. I love that. The idea of, of advocacy. Let's start with advocacy that that we can make happen right away with our own healthcare, right? Because for some of us that navigate these healthcare systems, how can we work to navigate them more effectively? How can we advocate for our own brain health and our own well-being in a more effective manner? No, absolutely. And I love that question because. Um, when we're talking about our generation, like the the younger women that from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and, and, and maybe 50s, is unfortunately we, depending on our intersectionalities, even when we have access to healthcare and really good one, we are discriminated against. You know, the aspect of implicit bias and discrimination in medical systems is is not something new and it's something that continues to happen despite all the trainings, right? So one aspect that I have tried, I have incorporated with myself because I had to advocate for my own health, making sure that my brain is also taken care of with my own medical providers here at UCLA, right? And it's accepting, not accepting their differential, right? And it's like engaging them in a conversation of, okay, what are you thinking? This is what I am feeling in my body, for example. So we get this miss pretty often when we are complaining about a symptom. And, and we get this miss and the differential that goes into their mind is, this is only stress. This is only anxiety. This is only uh, some, you're dealing with some depression. And the key component here is that that might be the case, but you know your body the, the most. So you know when something is off. And if you're not being listened to, I have advocated for myself and I have asked other of my um, friends, colleagues, and some of the caregivers that I work with, it's like, you need to just become louder and use the word of discrimination when it's appropriate and it's valid and you have enough data 
and honestly go to patient experience to complain about the treatment and probably choose a different provider if you have the ability and um, privilege to do so. One of the things that I noticed about your work is that you really advocate for folks to learn a little bit about the terminology and the emotional expression needed to communicate with doctors. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, so one one aspect that I that I notice is that there's a disconnect in understanding and there's a lot of assumptions that comes from both ways. Medical providers, they're amazing. Um, and the language that they use is extremely medically driven, right? So when we talk about Alzheimer's, for example, they will use that terminology. The, our community members um, don't have that terminology, not because they don't have access. Like, why would I learn this medical terminology? So one aspect, one of the interventions that I try to engage with our communities to bridge that break and um, teaching them, for example, if it's their concern about their memory or they have enough data to support that some uh, loved one is declining and possibly associated with Alzheimer's and they, they need an early identification, I ask them, I tell them, Think about the four A's in Alzheimer's. Amnesia, because that what I, that's what doctors understand, is amnesia, problems with memory. Agnosia, where they get lost, for example. They have anomia, is problems with language. And anosagnosia is problems with insight, meaning that how can they remember what they don't remember? So it's like, how do we bridge that disconnect and that gap? So hopefully that will enhance um, better communication and early detection um, and tailor prevention recommendations. I like that idea of thinking about how to tailor some of these recommendations. I'd like to hear a little bit about how we can start to care for our brains now. How can we promote overall brain health and, and sort of sharp thinking for the long-term? I love it. I think that one, one of my approaches is a simple one, to think that Everything that we do in a day from when we wake up to when we go to sleep and how we sleep, all of that involves your brain, right? Therefore, everything that I do on a daily basis is going to impact my brain. So I'm very mindful of, okay, how much am I walking? How much movement am I doing? If I am about like uh, if ha if I have um, mental health strategies, am I breathing when I'm stressed? Because we when we stress, well, unfortunately, we stop breathing, and we we don't have enough oxygen in our body. Guess what? Our brain also needs oxygen, and one of the areas that need a lot of oxygen is the hippocampus, which is the area that forms new memories. So if you are not breathing and then get dizzy or disoriented, it's a, it's like thinking about everything that we do on a daily basis, like how much water are we drinking? Not because like dehydration causes problems in the brain, but mostly because the brain is composed of mostly water. So I think that if we, like my, if I summarize it, it's like we start thinking on brain behavior relationships on a daily and nightly basis, we will make very conscious decisions of what's going to make my brain healthier and stronger now. What do you think people can do if they're interested in neurology? Maybe they're interested in going into research the way that you have done. Uh, where can people learn more and how they how do they get started? Oh my God. I want to say 
it's a little bit complicated because even like getting access to these resources, you can imagine, right? Um, asking questions and getting and not being comfortable with that now. Because a lot of our communities, a lot of, like we get a lot of no's and a lot of people that project their biases and expectations of what we're capable uh, onto us. And they say, oh, you cannot be a neurologist. Oh, you cannot be a doctor. No, yes, you can, right? Yes, you can. And uh, something I have been noticing with the younger generation um, is that the technology, they're so technologically savvy and they will just find things in the internet and email people on the spot. And it's exactly that, like the, uh, the, the how do I say this? The, the resources and the opportunities to be engaged in this type of research, I'm here in uh, UCLA, I'm here in neurology. I, I love mentoring and I love to open the doors to, to others like me that are passionate because someone when I was in undergrad believed that I had the capacity after a lot of people closed the doors in my face. And because of the some like one opportunity, here I am. So I want to pay that forward because I know how hard it is to deal with the system that believes that you're only capable of doing one thing, and that is not being a doctor. And I disagree. Dr. Diaz Santos, thank you so much for being here and sharing your time with us on Tamarindo. No, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. And we're back. I hope that was as illuminating for everybody as it was for me. And let's talk about the matracas this week, Brenda. Yeah. What gets your matraca this week? Well, I am going to take this opportunity. <laughs> the concept of blossoming friendships, which is what we decided to call our event, you know, Amigas Blossoming, uh, an event that we have coming up. But it's, it, it, I want to talk about the idea because that is truly the takeaway from our um, retreat is that we saw amistades blossoming. We saw connections blooming. We have this uh, um, WhatsApp group that is continuing to be very active, people that are following each other on social media that are, you know, I think we we set out one of the intentions. We had many intentions, but one of them was to like create meaningful connections. And it just feels so good that, that we could say, yes, that happened. You know, that really did yeah. happen. And so along with that spirit of, of meaningful connections and your brain health and your mental health, relationships are a component of that, right? It's very important that we have these relationships for many reasons and for our own survival and for our, for longevity, for healthy, longer lives. So if you are someone that wants to call in more, fr more friendships, or even if you want to um, bring an amiga with you and rekindle that what brought you both together. This is what we're creating. We're creating a space for that. This is going to be on March 28th. It's going to start at 6.30 p.m., but technically the program will start at 7. We like to give folks plenty of time to find parking. And we're doing this at the Pop Hop, which is a independent bookstore and creative learning space that amplifies marginalized voices. And we want to give you time to browse and shop. And, and it's just such a cute, cute place. So bring some extra cash for the shopping that I'm sure you're going to do at this beautiful space. And then we're going to engage. It's going to be facilitated Amiga blossoming activities in which we will um, make it possible for you to meet new people, share your magia of who you are, exactly kind of taking in the spirit of, of our previous event at Encuentro and bringing that energy. In fact, one of our, our new amigas, our, our new amigas from Encuentro is going to be a part of this event to help us um, ground ourselves in our bodies. So it's going to be great. And y'all can, there's various levels in which you can choose to come to this event. You can come from completely for free, or you can give a donation of any amount, or uh, we suggested a $12 donation, or if you want to give 25, it'll be great because it'll help subsidize someone that maybe is not able to give. So these are the, the, the ranges, basically whatever feels possible for you. Join us and we hope to see you March 28th at 6.30 p.m. You can register at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash event. 
Yes, I'm so excited and I can't wait to meet everybody there. Yes, yes. So what is your matraca? Okay, so this matraca, you know, is actually a little bit controversial on the internet this week. I have to say, uh, Carol G came out with a video for her song Contigo. And that video depicts a romance with young Miko, who is uh, openly lesbian. And so the idea, lots of people are saying, hey, like this is queer baiting. Maybe people feel uncomfortable with with the video because they're not quite sure of Carol G's status. Personally, I watched this video. I don't know Carol G's status, nor do I think she has to tell me what that status is. Um, but the video was such a, it just felt like such a celebration of queer love. It was really about uh, playing together, talking together, dancing together, you know, hanging out together, just sharing space together. And it, I feel like my life, in my life, I haven't seen a lot of depictions of queer love. And I think that for the health of our society, we need to see more versions um, of love other than what we've, what we're used to, I think. And for me, it was empowering and beautiful to see representation in that way, um, especially in this music genre. Yeah. What a yeah. celebration. Yes. Yeah. So matraca to Carol G for her uh, her video. Yes. Yes. I'm sure that folks are enjoying it. And, you know, one thing, whatever her status may or may not be, it's also just about there's choices we folks and artists make in the way that they celebrate their art. And, and when we're when the queer community is under such attack right now, you, you, it's important to to represent other ways of of showing love. Yeah. It's important whether they are actors or not. You know, and, and, and music videos um, nowadays. When you, I mean, almost every musician has to have a music video. So you're asking these folks to step into acting. So even if even that if that was the choice of how to depict this love story. We should celebrate it because it is that that critical to be able to see and be exposed to all the different possibilities of love. Yeah, I love that. All of the possibilities of love. Celebrate uh, yeah. everybody, everybody who's listening. Um, and y la basura, que um, Well, I mean, I know that folks are uh, have seen their inner, their um, feeds covered with this tragedy, so I won't go into too many details, but sort of related to what we just discussed about. There is, as we know, there's so much hateful rhetoric and legislation, and that has deadly consequences. And right now, who I'm thinking about, and who I know many of our listeners are thinking about, I'm thinking about the tragic death of Nex Benedict, a non-binary student in Oklahoma, who ultimately died because they were violently attacked in schools. They were not safe at school. And every young kid deserves to live. Every young kid deserves to feel safe at wherever they are. And I I am, um, of course, mourning this tragic loss. And I, I hope that it is also a wake-up call about how these decisions that are made in courtrooms and in legislation and in, by, by quote-unquote leaders, has have real consequences in the everyday lives of, of young people. So I want to throw in la basura the, the continued rise of these sorts of policies and, and rhetoric and acceptance, and, the, and, and, and kids are listening to us. So whatever moved the women, the young girls, to beat up these young people in the bathroom— is also from what they're hearing in their surroundings. So I think there's a lot of people responsible for this tragic death. And I want to tell all of them that they need to brought in hell and in la basura. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you said it really well. And for those of us that, um, for whom this, this feels very uh, close, um, I, I hope that you're taking care of yourself and... Yeah, we're sending you all everybody love. This is a space where we love all of our listeners and want to make sure that everyone's able to thrive. So I know we sometimes have heavy things and sometimes light things. What gets your basura? Okay, my basura is, I just want to say, and this is the last time I will mention it because I don't want to give it too much space, but this um, Selena, you know, people talking about uh, Selena's death and giving the space for Yolanda's kind of version of 
the details in her own special. I think it's something that we don't need. Yeah, nobody asked for it. Nobody's asking for it. Nobody wants to see this. I think that the family is not going to appreciate it. I think that we have had enough of um, maybe a little bit of exploitation of her memory. And a lot of it. A lot of it. <laughs> lot of and it. I think um, the way that we all, for the most part, right, the super fans and everybody who continues to be a fan, if, if that's you that's listening, we honor her in our own way, really. There's so many, you know, my my best friend and I, for example, on her birthday or on her, um, the the anniversary of her death, we kind of send each other videos and pictures and maybe we'll even cry a little. I know. Um, and it's, it's still too soon. Yeah. We, we kind of already <laughs> honor the memory. And so I, I don't, I don't really think it's necessary. And for me, it was a massive basura and I will not be, I will not be watching. Yeah. And don't even be hate watching. I know some people are like, I hate watch. No, don't do not. And, and everyone that had a part in okaying that project, <laughs> Adios. Trash. 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 <laughs> okay. Vamos a hablar. Okay. So, conexión, inspiración. What's giving it to you this week? I mean, I'm sure you, you're going to say this too. <laughs> I can tell because I, I can read your notes. <laughs> but um, we are both, I know, feeling really, really inspired by the group of women that we were able to bring together by... Um, the the relationships that are sparking by the creativity, by the meditation, the yoga, the um, adventures. There was also some learning, a lot of <laughs> yeah, learning yeah. in our first inaugural Encuentro retreat. So we're, we're very grateful to the women that um, chose to join us. Some of them said, I'm happy to be the guinea pig, you know, to, to, to learn. And we, we are, um, we've learned a lot in this, um, process and both of us also learned like, wow, I can't believe we did this. You know, yeah. <laughs> the whole time we're like, wow, I cannot believe we did this. So I'm feeling very inspired by Encuentro and I cannot wait to take what we've learned to build on this experience and do Encuentro 2.0. So if, if you all uh, se quedaron con las ganas, reach out to us, please, you, so that you could be among the first to know when we're ready to, to do this again. But I'm feeling really inspired by that. Yeah, I think it's two parts for me and a lot, really what you've said, you know, part one is like, I can't believe that we took a chance to do this and we made it happen. I know that there were, you know, lots of things that maybe we would do different next time. But for the most part, it was everything we dreamed was happening. Yeah. Right. Yes. And magical. It's amazing to see that you can like have these really big, lofty goals and dreams and you can make them happen, and especially in a partnership and with, yeah, with support so from wonderful. the community. Like I said, the best part was working with, the best part was working with Delcy. That was amazing. <laughs> it was really, it was really great. I learned a lot from you, Brenda, as I usually do. And I learned a lot in general about what it looks like to put on something this big. Yeah. Um, and the second part of this was really the hopefulness that I, I came away with so much hope because of the let's say there were 14 of us maybe total. Yeah. At one point there were 15 of us because you had some um, yeah, we family Yeah, we joined. were able to get um, some of our boots on the ground that were helping us source this. Yeah. Uh, we were able to participate in some of the workshops and, and um, you know, she also added some great value too. Yes. And you know, when you travel with people, you really get to know them. Yes. And these folks were all beautiful, lovely, interesting, um, flexible, caring, thoughtful. Like there was so many... Um, traits that were so uplifting that I thought, man, like we have some wonderful people out in this world that you can collaborate with, work with and enjoy. And so it it left me feeling really hopeful about friendships, about connections um, and about the future. Yeah. Yeah. To all of that. And and yeah, thank you everyone that was a part of it. If you're listening. Um, Wow. Just we couldn't have asked for a better group. And and I mean, a lot of it is that we were very intentional and thoughtful in how we selected folks to to attend. And wow, just thank you, everybody that that um, applied. Everybody that applied was selected uh, up until we hit our you know sold out. Um, and and just thank you all for just taking a chance on on this event. And those of you that are listening that are ready for the next one, wow, you're gonna it's gonna be even better because, <laughs> because 2.0. Some, yeah, some little things that we'll do that to, to make it even more magical. But yeah, I just want to give a big ass matraca to you and I because yeah, I can't yeah. believe we did, we did it. We did it, we did it. And to all our helpers that made it possible, matracas to all of you. 
And yeah, I mean... Oh, and big matraca to the people of Puebla, yes, Cholula, Tepoztlan, yes. all, all of the people that kind of hosted us and allowed us to be part of their world for that week. Yes. Yeah. Magical time, magical time. Well, with that, y'all, I want to tell you that if you love this episode, and as you can see, we're broadening our topics. We're talking about amazing creative, creative things. Please share this episode with a friend. Write us an Apple podcast review. If you think we're awesome and you have a couple of dollars, we also accept contributions. We just really appreciate all of you for listening. And it's, it's just a, such a gift to, to get to be in your ears. So just thank you for that. Agreed. Okay, hasta luego todos. All right, pon tu suéter, chao. Saludos a la familia. Tamarindo Podcast is Brenda Gonzalez and Delcy Sandoval. We are also the show's executive producers. Karina Riverall of Sonoro Media provides production support. Jeff Ricards wrote our theme song. The best way to support our work is to rate and review Tamarindo Podcast or share an episode with a friend. Get in touch with us at tamarindopodcast.com. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI, FPEI 220099.